Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal. Welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service. It comes to you live from our studios in central London. Today, News Hour's Lise Doucette returns to Aleppo one year on. The skies are overcast today, grey clouds, a bit of sun peeking through. But what's not in the skies is the warplanes we heard night after night and during the day in December of 2016. We will hear more of what she finds now the city is in the hands of the government of the Syrian president, Bashar al-Assad. Stay with us for that. Lots more coming up this hour. We begin today, though, with a rather dramatic story, the assassination of a leading Kosovan Serb politician. Oliver Ivanovic was hit by several bullets in a drive-by shooting as he arrived at his party headquarters in the ethnically divided northern Kosovan city of Mitrovica. This was how the murder was reported by Serbian state TV. The part of the city where the attack took place has been blocked off. To be more precise, it is the area in front of the building in which his party's headquarters are located. The police are not giving any details at the moment, and the investigation is underway. It's possible that the police will make some statements during the day. The murder of Ivanovic has been met with disbelief and shock among the residents of the northern part of Mitrovica. Well, the killing of Mr Ivanovich threatens to derail what's been an uneasy and often fragile peace of some 20 years between Kosovo and Serbia. Just a quick reminder of the history of this tiny landlocked country at the heart of Europe. The Kosovan war at the end of the 1990s was ended by a NATO bombing campaign initiated by the United States and Britain under the then Prime Minister Tony Blair. Kosovo unilaterally declared independence from Serbia in February 2008. It's been recognised by the United States and major European Union countries, but Serbia, backed by its powerful ally Russia, refuses to do so, as do most ethnic Serbs inside Kosovo. We'll talk to the BBC's Balkans correspondent Guy Delorny and a journalist in Kosovo in a moment. But first, let's hear from the French diplomat Bernard Kushner. He was the UN administrator in Kosovo in 1999, straight after the war, and knew the politician who was murdered today. He was Oliver Ivanovich, uh, the poor Oliver Ivanovich, I have to say now. He was very clever. He was more flexible than the other, and he was more political, much more political. So it was not so uneasy to talk to him and to try to get a sort of um, common future for the Serbian. And the Kosovo. Indeed, he was one of the very few. The moderate. Yeah, he was one of the very few moderate Kosovo Serbs who was if, uh, willing yeah. to speak to you. I don't say that because he died, but uh, and because of course this is so. Uh, it makes me remember how brutal they were, how how uh, barbarian some of these people were in Mitrovica and in defending so-called defending the northern part of Kosovo. Uh, but uh, Oliver was um, much more human, much more uh, political in the way. Can you remember when it was the last time that you met him? I don't remember exactly uh, the, the date, but uh, I remember that I met him in Pristina uh, with a group of uh, elected people. He was representative of uh, either Mitrovica or uh, a member of parliament. You know that... Uh, the Serbs, they refused to vote in the general election, but Oliver was uh, was not completely against this vote because for him, the future of Kosovo was something peaceful. Sorry to say so in the middle of uh, 
disgusting shooting by barbarian people. Because really, really, in this context of uh, violence, permanent violence day and night, Oliver was not that kind of, uh, he was not a killer. When you reflect on the perspective, the historical perspective that you clearly have uh, with regards to Kosovo, do you see his assassination as as bad news for the region? Of course, tragic for the man and his family, but, but the impact of it means what? means that violence is coming back. I hope uh, I'd be wrong, but uh, it, this is a very bad signal. Uh, this man, another, another time, another time, uh, was not the worst at all. He was not in favor of fight. Or, uh, he was not in favor of confrontation. So to kill such a man is in favor of the coming back of violence and coming back of murders. Because, you know, when at, at the beginning it was in 1099, day and night murders came, day and night. And step by step, with people like Oliver Ivanovich, we appease more or less, we, we diminish the, the number of deaths. And at the end, uh, it was more peaceful. So this is a very, very bad signal. Also, we had this uh, uh, Brussels process, uh, which was working, going on for reconciliation in between the Serbs and, uh, and the Kosovo. So it's a pity that uh, a man that, like Oliver Ivanovich, uh, has been killed. More than a pity. It, uh, it's a sorrow even for me. That was the former French foreign minister and uh, UN administrator in Kosovo, Bernard Kushner. Let's hear now from uh, Yetta Jara, who is an award-winning Kosovan-Albanian journalist in Pristina. She is Kosovo director for Balkan Investigative Network. It's an independent NGO which promotes freedom of speech, human rights and democratic values in the region. I've met Oliver Ivanovic, uh, and he was very approachable by, by Kosovo Albanians in particular because he spoke uh, great Albanian, um, which is extraordinary for a Serbian politician we, who, who live in Kosovo, do not speak much Albanian. Oliver was very approachable in that sense. And after the war, he became member of parliament. I met him, a charming man. But at the same time, I've met and interviewed the victims who say that during 99, They've seen him in military uniform running uh, battalions that ethnically cleanse apartment blocks. I met these parents whose two sons were never seen again after Oliver Ivanovich uh, came with the battalions to their house and took uh, their sons away. They were not killed there. He did not see him shoot anybody, but he, uh, they did see Ivanovich lead a Serbian army battalion that ethnically cleansed that area. After the war, what's important to say is that Oliver Ivanovich was not the man that Serbia wanted to support uh, to become mayor. Today was the most unfortunate that I think he wouldn't have liked in what we see happen today is that uh, the president of Serbia said that the murder of Oliver Ivanovich is a sign that Serbs are in danger in Kosovo and they are being pushed to be thrown out. So unfortunately, his murder is going to be used 
by politicians to send very ethnically fueled messages which will not help any reconciliation that Oliver was um, eventually determined to push. To what extent do you think the murder should happen now might make a different kind of impact from now on? I mean, Bernard Kushner was, was very bleak about what he thinks it meant. The latest publication from Balkan Investigative Reporting Network, the organization that um, I run in Kosovo, has published investigations about the work of uh, Russian-supported groups in the north of Kosovo. Also, there are organized criminal groups that are still functioning, looking basically for funders in the Balkans. There's always a bounty head on independently-mined politicians who don't prescribe to either Belgrade or Pristina, in this sense. So where where do you think this leaves what's happened today? Where does it leave the relationship with Belgrade? It just brings back to some, um, I believe, myth that it's not possible for Serbs and Albanians to somehow get agreements on getting a normal working life for both, both citizens of Kosovo and Serbia. There's tendency to take it back to the time of ethnic hatreds, and actually, uh, people are so disinterested in that. So the, the, the process of dialogue between Belgrade and Kosovo, given that Belgrade has never recognised um, its independence, has been a very slow one. My understanding from everything you're saying suggests that um, this assassination may in fact slow it even further. But it's almost like just exposes how little they have done. Uh, these are uh, lazy and backward politicians who will use this murder as another excuse to uh, slow it even further. That was uh, Yeta Jara, a Kosovo-Albanian journalist, uh, talking to me a little earlier from Kosovo. Let's uh, speak to our Balkans correspondent, Guy Delorny, who's been listening to all of that. He has also met Oliver Ivanovic on a number of occasions. Guy, let's go back to what we were hearing from Yeta Jara about those uh, war crime charges against Oliver Ivanovic because there, there was a retrial that was ongoing, wasn't there? That's right. We were waiting to see what was going to happen with that trial and if indeed it would actually go ahead. It has to be said that there was a great amount of disquiet about the original trial, uh, not just among Kosovo Serbs, but among the international community. You heard the start there how highly regarded Oliver, Oliver Ivanovich was among Western diplomats as being sort of voice of reason of uh, North Kosovo Serbs. A lot of people thought it was terribly strange and convenient that he should be charged with war crimes just as he was preparing to run uh, to be mayor of North Mitrovica. You also heard Yeta say that uh, Oliver, Oliver Ivanovich was not Belgrade's man in uh, North Kosovo. He was very much his own man. And of course, people start putting all sorts of conspiracy theories together. Uh, we may never now know the truth of uh, what happened vis-a-vis these war crimes charges. Uh, But what everybody did say about Oliver Ivanovich was that after 1999, he was one person who did work genuinely to try and bring the ethnic Albanian and ethnic Serb communities together. Um, What reaction has there been on on the killing of Mr Ivanovich uh, from Belgrade, Guy? Well, in Belgrade, there's been a furious reaction. Uh, President Vucic um, abandoned his trip to Brussels, where he was meant to be meeting uh, opposite numbers uh, from Kosovo in this ongoing normalization dialogue. 
Um, he held a news conference. He called the assassination of Mr. Ivanovich uh, an act of terrorism. And he said that if Kosovo doesn't find the killers, we will. Um, which, of course, is not really what uh, you want to hear uh, when you're talking about a normalization process or Kosovo, which unilaterally de declared its independence from Serbia 10 years ago, uh, wants to hear in terms of its own police force. It wants to carry out its own investigation, uh, says their president, uh, Mr. Hashim Thaci, and Prime Minister Ramush Haradinaj has said that uh, one thing that shouldn't happen is for uh, politicians to use the death of Mr. Ivanovich uh, to their own ends. Well, this is the Western Balkans. Good luck with that. Well, I was just going to ask you, in, in the context of uh, the 10-year anniversary approaching, we're in a very delicate situation at the moment. To what extent could this uh, be the beginning of real instability at the heart of Europe again? I think that's uh, projecting things quite a long way forward, to be honest with you. Uh, Mr. Ivanovich, you were frank about it, and the other guests have mentioned this too, had been marginalised over the past few years in terms of being um, an ethnic Serb leader in uh, North Mitrovica. He was no longer uh, the ethnic Serb power in that area, if he ever had been in the first place. We have had this dialogue going on between Pristina and Belgrade. There are other people in place in northern Kosovo who represent uh, the ethnic Serb community politically as okay. well. Uh, we so will, all we, of that will still be there. We will leave it there, Guy Delorney. Thank you very much. This is News Hour. Coming up later in today's programme, the Philippines news website Rappler has had its licence taken away and been told to shut down by a government regulator. For now, they plan to continue operating. Maria Ressa is the CEO of Rappler. What I'm more concerned about is the safety of my journalists. I'm old. <laughs> you know. I have a very, very courageous reporter in the palace, and she asks the toughest questions. And we want to make sure that we can continue doing that, and we will keep shining the light. Stay with us for that interview. Our headlines this hour, as we've been hearing, Serbia has condemned the killing of a prominent ethnic Serb politician in Kosovo, calling it an attack on the entire nation. Bangladesh and Myanmar have agreed a plan for the return of Rohingya refugees, but it's not clear how their safety will be guaranteed. This is Razia Iqbal with NewsHour coming to you live from the BBC in London. Now, if, been, if you have been following the complexities of the Syrian story, you'll know that this time last year or thereabouts, the final battles for the important city of Aleppo were being fought, with the whole of Aleppo now back under government control. Our chief international correspondent, Lise Doucette, is back there again. She's been gauging the extent to which life has changed, returning to some of the people she met during her last visit. It's been a little more than a year now since the intense last battles for the city of Aleppo, the great city of Aleppo, ended. And the skies are overcast today, grey clouds, a bit of sun peeking through. But what's not in the skies is the warplanes we heard night after night and during the day in December of 2016. You don't hear the sounds of explosions. There aren't the huge uh, waves of people on the run fleeing the fighting. So Aleppo feels a lot calmer. But how different is it? Well, I'm here to speak to two young people I met on my last visit to Aleppo. There's Basma and Yasser. It's very nice to see you again. Yes, nice to meet you again in uh, different circumstances. I have to say that your your face 
tells me something, even just your face. You're smiling, you seem much more relaxed. How does it feel now? We're getting to live um, a bit of a normal life. Like, for example, now I can go to the movies. <laughs> yeah, which was one of my my favorite uh, things to do, but I couldn't. <laughs> but now I go regularly on a weekly basis. And what about you, Yasser? I mean, when we met mass, you, you know, the worry crossed your face. We, we could feel it. How does the city feel for you? Now I have a new son. This is the first time for me. It's like the, a new life for me and my family. It's a new happiness, new phase of the life. Uh, now we are living in a much quieter city comparing to the before. We have more, uh, let's say, safety. Still there are risks, but still we have at least some moments that we can go out without the fear of like the shelling that every uh, now and then that we used to have last year. And what about for you, Basaba, when a fabric is ripped, in this case in Aleppo, the social fabric has been ripped, how hard how hard will it be to, to actually stitch it back together again? It depends on the person, and uh, I need to share with you some things I notice uh, generally, that women outnumber the men. <laughs> the so men- that means more that a lot of the men have fled or died, and so most died. families are now headed by women, dominated by the women? Exactly, yes. And what about for you, Yasser? You told us last time we met that a lot of your family had left the country. Do they talk about coming back? We have a building of 10 apartments for my brothers and sisters. So now we are repairing this building. My brother last week was discussing with me how he would uh, get back to Aleppo. He's in he, Europe or in Turkey? Where is he? he? He's in Turkey, still in Turkey, and he's planning to get back. With Also, uh, my sister is planning to get back. You know, there are too many difficulties, but despite that, they are thinking seriously to get back to Aleppo. And Basma, when we last met, you said one of the things you wanted to do when the fighting ends was that you wanted to go to the ancient citadel of Aleppo, a world heritage site that was very much the focus of fighting. So it was off limits to anyone to visit. Have you been to the citadel? We were all in tears. We went into the citadel. And it was like every step brought up memories, brought up people who we we don't see anymore, brought up, you know, scenes from the old peaceful life. So it was hard of us. We could not uh, look at in each other's eyes because we knew how it felt. There was this um, street vendor selling uh, pies, local pies, and he was, you know, decorating his uh, cart with the uh, flowers and things. So we all bought from him. That, that moment, I felt peaceful. Stories of residents from the Syrian city of Aleppo uh, shared with our chief international correspondent, Lise Doucette. Now, circumstances any parent will recognise or perhaps dread. You're waiting up anxiously for your child to come home and the sound of the key in the lock or the car on the drive never comes. This is what happened to Tony Lethbridge on Australia's east coast. His son Samuel dropped off a friend in his car in the early hours of Sunday morning. But the hours passed and Sam never returned home. Fearing the worst, Tony went to the police, who said they'd have to wait 24 hours before taking action. But uh, Mr Lethbridge wasn't prepared to wait and decided to take matters into his own hands. Police protocol down here, it takes 24 hours before they're officially missing, so be it. But I couldn't wait any longer. 
Um, I thought if he's had a car accident, which if he's out there, he'd been out there obviously since 7 o'clock Sunday morning. And come Monday, first thing, I said to my wife, um, I'm not going to wait any longer. Um, I'm going to hire a helicopter and go looking for him because it was only a very small road. It was about 50 kilometres long and there was only certain amounts of certain areas where you could actually drive off because there was guardrails along there. So it was narrowed down to a very small area and we sort of had a point A and point B to go to. So I went down to the local helicopter down here at um, Helilift and I said, I've got $1,000 here. I need someone to travel up and down this small road and, and see if we can find my son because he's been missing. And they were perfectly and happy to, to oblige? Yes, they were They were more than happy to oblige for me. They, I tried to organise the payment and, and all the paperwork and they said, no, no, we won't worry about that now. We'll get up in the air and start looking for him because he's been gone long enough. So I actually put my brother in the helicopter because... Oh, it was blowing fairly hard, and I do get a bit airsick, so I put my brother in the helicopter. They removed all the windows and doors and everything out of the helicopter so he could see perfectly out of every way. Um, and then within, I, I would say, eight to ten minutes, I got received a text from my brother. I've, we found it. Yeah, it was just unbelievable, to, the feeling of they found it, and then I had the other feeling come over me of, is he alive type thing, and... He told me where it was, and it is actually 10 minutes away from our house. So I've jumped in my car. I've drove over there a million mile an hour to try and get there. Um, the, the helicopter actually lowered my brother, well, landed across the road and let my brother off so he could run down and, and see if Samuel was alive. And I received a text sort of halfway there in my car saying he's alive. And how is Sam now? In a stable condition. He's in intensive care, but he's um, improving little bits and pieces every sort of hour. Broken femur, which was protruding about two inches out of his leg, and he's got a broken arm, dislocated elbow. Um, He's had a little small fracture in the back of his neck, a couple of little bleeds on the brain, but they're not really concerned about that. It sounds pretty painful for him and he spent 30 hours on his own has he been able to to tell you what was going on in his head during that time whether he thought anyone would find him he hasn't spoke really at all um when i got there and ran down the hill in through the bushes and everything and and put my arms around him and you know i told him your dad's got you now mate he looked at me and and sort of dopey eyed and said i'd love a drink (laughs) <laughs> and um, he was trapped um, below the waist. So the car has come off the road, rolled, flipped twice or something and, and landed on its wheels. He was there and, you know, all his mates and his sisters and his sister and his brother, and they all went looking for him that night. We all actually drove past him two or three times. A very relieved Tony Lethbridge speaking about his son, Sam, who is, uh, we understand, recovering slowly. Speaking to me there from New South Wales, you're listening to NewsHour. Coming up next, the Philippines news website threatened with being shut down. We'll find out why. But first, gun crime has long been a problem in Jamaica with illegal weapons easily obtainable. But recently... It's legally held ammunition that has been targeted by the authorities. There are some 40,000 licensed firearms holders in Jamaica. That's just over 1% of the entire population. Nick Davies reports. 
So I've been kitted out with ear defenders. Uh, I'm just making my way through some absolutely gorgeous countryside on the outskirts of Kingston. Just walking down to meet Scott Brown, whose family own this shooting facility. First string, shoot two rounds in the center of A only. Shooter, you have four seconds. Shooter, are you ready? Stand by. Shirt up, toast up. They've known us to be strict, but if this was all being done everywhere, island-wide, there would be less of an argument from the detractors, right? Saying that, oh, you know, rounds are, are leaving the ranges, etc., etc. So. There are 14 gun ranges on the island, and the authorities believe lax practices on some mean bullets are being slipped into criminal hands. Legal gun holders are allowed 1,000 bullets a year to use on practice ranges, and they can hold 50 at home. Scott says his team follows stringent rules to make sure all bullets used on his range are accounted for. And we're going to tag the shells with their name and the amount of um, rounds that they bought from us. And this so is just to make sure that no rounds... Just to make rounds... sure that no rounds leave the property. Everything is accounted for. That's the argument, is that the rounds are coming from legitimate places. But I'm almost certain that that accounts for so little. So little. It's almost, I don't say negligible, but close to negligible. Because word on the street is, there's a good underground market or black market for rounds. Why, why would they need to, to get it from the legitimate places? That's just ridiculous. You're just tying the hands of the uh, licensed farm holders. You're just tying the hands of persons who want to be able to defend themselves and practice. But on the streets of Kingston, the taxi drivers who say they know their city better than anyone are coy about weapons, legal and illegal. They know they're in circulation. If I can get them in a good, like a good... Um this man tells me that many drivers carry weapons to stop them from being robbed or their vehicles stolen. Just about to drive off, but it's a real risk, is it? Yes, true. It's a real risk. Would you ever carry? Fingers to lips. Okay, that kind of says it all. Uh, I guess I shouldn't really ask that question. New appointments have now been made for Firearms Licensing Authority as the ministry in charge grapples to control the flow of legal ammunition into the wrong hands. But in Kingston, it will not be easy. And that report was from our correspondent Nick Davis, uh, who is in Kingston, Jamaica. You're listening to News Hour from the BBC. I'm Rasia Iqbal. Let's go to the Philippines now. The authorities there have ordered the closure of an independent online news site that's been critical of President Duterte's administration. Indeed, some might argue the shutting down of the Rappler website is like the removal of a thorn in his side. The news site says this is political and a breach of the value of freedom of speech. President Duterte says the decision was nothing to do with him. I've been speaking to Maria Ressa, the CEO of Rappler, and first the BBC's Howard Johnson in the Philippines capital, Manila. Howard, first on the significance of Rappler in the media landscape. 
Since opening in 2012, Rappler have been a crusading and investigative outlet in this country, and they've been particularly fearless in their criticism of the Duterte government, particularly in relation to his war on drugs and a lack of due process when it comes to the way that the police have killed thousands of drug suspects. So they've written pretty strong articles, investigative pieces on this story, and as a result, they've faced a barrage of criticism from the Duterte government and his supporters, particularly by online bloggers and trolls, and there have been death threats to the editor-in-chief and her reporters and many other nasty attacks online. And what we're seeing now, then, is the licence being taken away. Give us the background to that. Why? What are the specific reasons why this is happening? Well, this boils down to an investment in Rappler by two groups in 2015, North Base Media, who are a collective of former journalists and also the Omidar network set up by Pierre Omidar, founder of eBay, the online marketplace. And the Philippines Securities and Exchange Commission, which regulates financial dealings in the country, say that Philippine depository receipts, which are certificates issued by a local bank here representing the equity invested in Rappler by these companies, indicates that Rappler is owned and therefore controlled by these foreign entities. And therefore the decision that's come out of this, they say that the constitution prevents foreign ownership of media companies here. Maria Ressa, you are the chief executive and editor of Rappler. It's clear, isn't it, that you are breaking that particular law by having these foreign investors? No, absolutely not. What we have are Philippine depository receipts. These are constitutional. There are other media groups and other companies in the Philippines that have these. They're called PDRs. They're legal means by which foreign entities can support Philippine companies. And so what's your assessment then of why your license is being taken away? This is political. It's very clear to us when you look at the actions of the government over the last year and a half, both the harbinger, the attacks on social media, and then last July in his State of the Nation address, President Duterte himself singled out Rappler and uh, talked about our foreign ownership, all of which, you know, in order to actually have PDRs, you submit these papers to the Securities and Exchange Commission. We couldn't have these without the Securities and Exchange Commission knowing about it. So, In our case, this is harassment. This is to try to silence our reporting. This is to try to intimidate us. Can you just give us some indication of the manifestation of physical harassment? I mean, has there been? No. And I think this is what makes it, you know, I've been a war zone correspondent. And in many instances, it is easier when you know where the gunfire is coming from. After we did the uh, weaponization of social media series that is backed by data, it is both quantifiable, you can see it, right? After we did that, I got an average of 90 hate messages per hour for about a month. And all of this coincided with the actual acceleration of the war on drugs. So part of our problem is knowing when that kind of attack becomes real. You don't know, especially when our reporters are going out every night and they see an average of eight people killed every night. Howard Johnson, both the president and the president's spokesperson, have denied that this decision to take away the licence from Rappler is anything to do with the president. What evidence do they present to support that? 
Yes, Harry Roque, the president's uh, spokesman today, said at a, a news conference that they hadn't had a hand in uh, this decision. As Maria Reza said back at the State of the Nation address back in July last year, President Duterte said that he believed that Rappler is 100% owned by the Americans. There has been no evidence presented by the government on this front. The SEC are doing all the uh, accusations. But today, President Duterte did come forward and said, and I quote, we have never had a hand in it, and I don't give, and he said an expletive, if you continue your network or not. If you're trying to throw garbage at us, the least you can do is explain about you. Are you also clean? Maria Ressa, what's your response to that? I think you just have to look at the actions. You have to look at reality. We did not get due process in the sense of there were several steps that were skipped by the Securities and Exchange Commission. We weren't given a chance to respond to it. Other companies who've been in similar situation were given a year to change that one clause, and there were no permits, uh, no licenses revoked. The penalty imposed is extremely severe. This is both also not just a corporate issue on ownership, but it is also a press freedom issue. We are imbued with public interest, and the Philippine Constitution gives extra rights to journalists in that sense, right? So I think you just have to look at the actions. What is it that's going to happen next? Because there is a suggestion that you can continue to operate pending an appeal. What more can you do? I think we continue doing our reporting as is, but what's worrisome is where this could potentially lead, which is simultaneous to giving us the decision, it was also transmitted to the Department of Justice. And that means that they can now, and Kalida actually, the Office of the Solicitor General, actually said that they could begin criminal investigations against Rappler. That could lead to an arrest. That could lead to, to be honest, I don't know what to expect. I am going to the government for assurance that rule of law will be respected. Are you concerned for your own safety? I think I'm prudent. I'm taking the right measures. I am prepared for anything that can happen. I've looked at worst case scenarios, but it becomes very difficult to even figure that out when the line keeps moving. And you're not living currently with any protection? No, I've done that before and it is really, I I don't like that. I think it limits your own ability to act as a journalist. So we're trying to be smart. What I'm more concerned about is the safety of my journalists. I'm old. <laughs> you know. Uh, it is, I have a very, very courageous reporter in the palace who gets as many hate messages as I do sometimes. And she asks the toughest questions. And we want to make sure that we can continue doing that and we will keep shining the light. The rather redoubtable Maria Ressa, CEO of Rappler. And I was also speaking to the BBC's Howard Johnson. The President of France, Emmanuel Macron, is in Calais today to talk about that seminal issue of our times, migration. On Thursday, he'll be in London, where migration and border controls will be central to his discussions with the British Prime Minister, Theresa May. Mr Macron's government is about to introduce a new law on immigration and asylum. Its aim is to speed up procedures so that people who arrive from Afghanistan, say, or Syria or Guinea, can either be integrated as quickly as possible if they succeed in getting refugee status or, conversely, just as quickly be sent home. But already there's fierce opposition, with some accusing the liberal-minded young president of pandering to the policies of the hard right. Hugh Schofield reports from Paris. 
migrant land in Paris is here beneath the metro arches of La Villette. It's here that you pitch up if you trekked overland from Kabul. It's here that the tent cities used to spring up like mushrooms, now systematically uprooted by police. And it's here at the PADA, typical impenetrable French acronym, that you come to wait in line for an appointment for an appointment to start the process of seeking asylum. On a typical Monday morning, there are 200 lined up, squalid, tired. It's the Afghans who talk a little English. I want to go England, but uh, the border is very difficult. Cross the border, difficult. Even last night, we all was outside, we sleeping on the road. And that's why we are waiting now again. It's President Macron's aim to make life at least a bit clearer for these benighted people. His new law contains a lot of detail about permissible detention periods and rights to appeal, but the principle is simple. If you deserve asylum, then you're welcome. If you don't, then efficiently, humanely, you will be sent home. But it's this principle that's got many in France, the left, intellectuals, people working with migrants, very angry. Word in these circles is that on migration, Macron is as bad as the hated Sarkozy, if not worse. For Lola Schulman of the charity Catholic Aid, it's the basic philosophy of his law which is wrong. There is a big distinction between the nice refugees and the unwanted migrants. So it's this really this kind of uh, opposition that is inside this law, saying that we want to do a real selection between uh, those two categories and creating more and more categories is also putting in the head of all people that they are good and bad migrants. In France, you know that the migration debate is getting out of control when the word RAF starts being bandied around, like here by the socialist Julien Drey. RAF means roundup, and it's the word that inescapably brings to French minds the roundups of Jews by the Nazis. Now, here's a leading left-wing politician saying that Macron is opening the door to new RAF. The government says it's simply trying to find out who is where. The left conjures up images of jackboots and prison camps. There's such emotion in France about ideas like this that all governments need to tread very carefully. But Christophe Castaner, who heads President Macron's République en Marche party, says there'll be no yielding to the pressure. The aim is to be fair but firm. It's very easy to come out with high-sounding declarations, but the point is our system isn't working. We are not properly integrating the migrants who stay here. And as for those who fail to get asylum, we cannot continue with a situation where only 4% of expulsion orders are actually carried out. In fact, the government knows that for all the furore among the intellectual classes, public opinion favours tougher policies. Gil Mahaley edits the right-wing magazine Causeur. His view is that there's a perfectly good moral case for limiting immigration to those genuinely fleeing persecution. For the others, emotion should not be the determinant. It seems to me that the world is moving. <laughs> I think the, the, the southern hemisphere is trying to go up north and it's clear that this is not an option. So we need to do something about it. By overcoming uh, the uh, legitimate human emotions uh, that we, we experience when we see on the television uh, what is happening to these people. We, we need to be detached. We need to find this magic way to do both. To be able to be moved by the, the distress of someone and to be able to say no 
because uh, the moral of consequences obliges us to say no. France cannot take in all the misery of the world, Emmanuel Macron has said, quoting an earlier socialist prime minister, saying no is part of his deal. Not all who come will stay. And that report was from our correspondent Hugh Schofield in Paris. Don't forget, you can uh, get in touch and tell us what you think about our programme. At BBC NewsHour is the programme's Twitter handle, at Razia Iqbal is mine. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour. And a reminder of our top story this hour. Serbia has condemned the killing of a prominent ethnic Serb politician, Oliver Ivanovic, in Kosovo, calling it an attack on the entire nation. The former French foreign minister and former UN special representative to Kosovo, Bernard Kushner, paid tribute to Mr Ivanovic here on NewsHour. For him, the future of Kosovo was something peaceful. Sorry to say so in the middle of... uh, disgusting shooting by barbarian people because really really in this context of uh, permanent violence day and night oliver was not that kind of uh, he was not a killer And in other news, concerns have been raised over plans to start moving Rohingya Muslim refugees back to Myanmar from Bangladesh next week. Aid agencies say their safety must first be guaranteed. We'll be talking more about that in just a moment. This is Razia Iqbal with NewsHour from the BBC World Service. Our programme yesterday, if you were listening, was dominated by the plight of Rohingya refugees in what's now the world's biggest refugee camp in eastern Bangladesh. Today, Bangladesh and Myanmar have been giving details of the planned repatriation of hundreds of thousands of Rohingya people who fled a Burmese military campaign last year. It's thought this will all begin imminently. The Bangladeshi Foreign Minister, Foreign Secretary Sahidul Haq, told the BBC what the agreement entailed. We asked them to take back 15,000 every week, but they said they will take back 300 people every day, so that makes 1,500 every week. So we compromised that we will start by sending 300 people each day, but there will be a review in three months' time and the number will be increased. And the spokesman for the Burmese foreign minister, Mient Tu, said Myanmar was already preparing for their return. The repatriation process will begin on the 23rd of January, with two reception camps for refugees coming in over land and another for those returning by sea. Another three transit camps are under construction and a coordination committee, led by Aung San Suu Kyi, is also implementing village plans to build new villages. So how realistic are these repatriation plans? I'm joined now on the line by the BBC Southeast Asia correspondent, Jonathan Head. Uh, Jonathan, lots of questions still to be answered. Is, is what we're hearing from Bangladesh and Myanmar realistic? Well, I mean, they, they can probably start with a few hundred. Uh, I think both sides have assessed that there are some people who may be willing to come back um, and they could be accommodated very easily. But the, the large numbers uh, just aren't practical at this stage, even 1,500 a week. And remember, with 740,000 in total, because this, is, this includes those who left after some violence in October 2016 as well, even 1,500 a week, it would take nearly 10 years to get them back. And you heard the Bangladeshis want the numbers increased. But the details that are missing at the moment are the fact that this is supposed to be a voluntary repatriation Um, The UN says most of the refugees have expressed a firm determination not to go back unless their safety can be assured. 
And it's hard to see how that can happen as long as Myanmar refuses any kind of access to Rakhine State, where they've got to go back to, to international agencies, the media and anyone else. Um, the Northern Rakhine State is still essentially run by the same military that the Rohingyas accuse of carrying out the most appalling abuses against them. So even that, and there's a lot of other issues like, you know, community reconciliation at the moment, the non-Muslim population, and indeed the most of the population in Myanmar, is very hostile to the idea of the Rohingyas coming back at all, and very little is being done to change their minds. So the obstacles seem formidable at the moment. And it's, it's beyond the repatriation. You've outlined some of the other issues, but it's also to do with ensuring that these people have some uh, civil rights, which they clearly don't haven't had, and part of the reason why they fled in the first place for, and have been doing for many decades. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's not, you know, the, the problem is there's, there's a huge yawning gap between this apparent willingness of Myanmar, and it does seem ready in principle to take these people back, and what we hear. I mean, for example, I've seen on, on Burmese television, it's almost all state-run, uh, a 30-minute discussion with journalists. These are Burmese journalists who've been to Rakhine State who are repeating the same dogma that, uh, that Rohingyas, they don't use the word Rohingya, Bengalis are all illegal interlopers, even saying they threaten the country's security. That kind of rhetoric is not being toned down at all. This is a country that doesn't seem ready to accept them back, let alone accept them as equal citizens. Uh, and those are issues that aren't really being addressed at all at the moment. Jonathan Head, our Southeast Asia correspondent. Uh, clearly, this isn't an issue that's going to go away anytime soon. And there is little sign that the Rohingya refugees now living in what's become the world's biggest refugee camp near Cox's Bazaar in eastern Bangladesh are even preparing to go home. Our correspondent Justin Rolat reports now from there. So I'm just coming back to see if we can find Rashida again. I've been here for about three months and it has completely changed. The, the hillside I'm walking up now was covered in forest. Every single hilltop for maybe a couple of miles is now covered with refugee shacks. So now, if I remember rightly, Rashida's place is just up here on the right. Javid, I think it's here, yeah? There's Rashida. Rashida! Hey, Rashida, how are you? I'm fine. Have you named the baby now? Because when we came before, you hadn't named the baby yet. Mama Sufayid. And where is he now? Where is Mohammed? Can we have a look? Can we see him? Oh, my God, he's so beautiful, Rashida. Mohamed Soufait is three and a half months old, but right from birth he faces discrimination. The Bangladeshi authorities won't issue birth certificates to Rohingya babies, so officially Soufait does not exist. We first met his mother, Rashida, by the roadside on the day she escaped from Myanmar. She was nine months pregnant. She told me how the Myanmar army and local Buddhists had attacked her village. They came at two in the morning. They set fire to our houses and started shooting. That's when we fled. I walked for seven days to get here. It has been so hard, but we had to escape. But their troubles were far from over. Guards moved her and her family on. They said there was land over the hill, but not enough for everyone. 
Hundreds of refugees battled to get some space. <laughs> Rashida's husband, Monjur, tried to stake out a piece of land but was driven off by other refugees. Despite the rain, they had to sleep out in the open. Days later, they found a small plot on a hilltop and built a rudimentary shack. <laughs> Sufait was born on the soggy mud floor. He was born right here. There was no midwife, no medicine, no mat, no wood to light a fire. It was so painful. But by God's grace, a girl from next door came and cut the umbilical cord. Then I picked him up from the mud. That's how my baby came into this world. Luckily, Sufate hasn't caught cholera or diphtheria, two of the deadly diseases that have broken out in the camps since he was born. But not having any official identity will be a real problem for him. Rashida's story in microcosm, the experience of many, many Rohingya Muslims from Rakhine State, uh, told there by our correspondent Justin Rolat and bringing this edition of News Hour to an end. Thanks very much for your company this past hour. I'll be back again tomorrow. I hope you'll join me then. Bye-bye. News Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.